in Axis Church. How we doing? Is anybody out there? I don't know about you, but I love a good headline. And uh, I, I, I fall for clickbait all the time. I got to just acknowledge that. But remember the day when it was just newspapers and you would see the headliners are walking by the newspaper stand or the magazine headline or whatever it is. And whatever that headline is, if it's really done well and it's the right headline, it compels you to want to read deeper into that, to look deeper into that. Today they just call it clickbait. And uh, so I've fallen for it more than one time, but I love a good headline. And I thought, what's better than this headline here for a Christmas headline? This is from the Babylon Bee, and it just says this, husband weeks early in buying wife wrong Christmas present, right? That headline tells the whole story, right? And I love that. I'm going to read the whole article because I... Not that I can relate to it at all or anything like that, or any of you can, but um, some of you ladies are like, yep, yep. Local husband, Terry McJerry, okay, it's satire, all right, but you got to appreciate like, the great effort there. Terry McJerry was seen beaming with confidence as he waited in line at the department store checkout, having picked out the wrong Christmas present for his wife weeks earlier than usual. According to witnesses, McJerry marveled at having purchased the wrong present 21 days before his usual frenzied Christmas Eve shopping spree, asking the store clerk to please wrap the incorrect gift. He then selected wrapping paper his wife would hate and an elegant lace blow, uh, bow that did not match at all. I feel like a new man, onlookers heard McJerry exclaim as he left the store, a gift-wrapped box tucked under his arm that would find itself back in the same store within 48 hours of Christmas morning. I just love the magical season of giving and returning for something better. At publishing time, Abigail McJerry had just purchased her husband a boringly practical Christmas gift. I love that, you know, I love good satire, I love a good headline, and let me just give you guys some tips. I've learned this the hard way, I try to be cute and creative, but my wife gives me hints, right? Like well before Christmas time, and if I would just pay attention to those hints, if I would just stick with the script, so guys out there buying for your significant other, husbands for your wives, just just buy what she tells you to buy, all right? It just, it saved everybody a lot of trouble. Uh, but I love that headline. And uh, if I was thinking about really a headline for Christmas, that very first Christmas, it would be tough to really capture this story, right? What, what, uh, would, what, what headline would really do this story justice? Um, what about this one? God becomes flesh, makes his dwelling among us. John 1, 14, or as Eugene Patterson says it, God moves into the neighborhood. I mean, if you were a person living in Bethlehem at that time, or really a first century person at all, uh, or a person of any time, really, for that matter, isn't that a compelling concept? I mean, don't you want to, just thinking about this idea of God moving into the neighborhood, I mean, doesn't that at least pique some curiosity in you, right? There's something compelling about that kind of a headline that makes you want to dive deeper into the story. I mean, talk about some good clickbait. Now, what I want to just ask you this morning as we kind of dive into this is don't let the reality of that slide pass. You've probably heard that scripture a million times. You've heard the Christmas story perhaps, you know, more times than you can count. But I want to dive into this just with some fresh eyes today. And I'll just be honest with you, this was one of those topics where 
I really like had trouble this week in preparation for it. And usually it's not the topics where there's not enough to say that I have trouble with. I mean, it's not like I'm sitting there like, man, what do you say about this? But when you think about this idea of the incarnation of Jesus, this idea that God moves into the neighborhood, that God becomes flesh, making his dwelling among humanity, how do you even do that topic justice? I mean, and that's really what I wrestled with, and I'm just going to do my best um, to, to bring some implications to light here and try to do my best to do this topic justice today. But we're going to be talking about, as we talked about last week, the divinity of God. This week we're talking about the humanity of God. You think about the fact that God became a human, that he, he actually stepped into our reality, our world, that he put on human flesh. It says this in John 1, 9 through 14. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of a husband's decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word, meaning Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So let's talk just a little bit this morning about the implications of what is happening in John 1, 9 through 14. The implications of God himself being a human man, born to us in the baby that we see at Bethlehem. Here's the first implication. In Jesus, we discover the God who wants to be known. That God actually wants to be known. The word becomes flesh and makes his home among us. God's written word and his word become flesh Flesh shouts to the world from the mouth of God, I want to be known, encountered, experienced. This is God's message to the world in sending his son Jesus to us. Scripture says this, that the son is the image of the invisible God, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Simply put, Jesus is the perfect representation of God. As the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Michael Ramsey said, God is Christ-like and in him is no unchristlikeness at all. Jesus is the perfect representation of God. Again, this is a big concept. This is a tough thing for us to wrestle with. How can he be both man and God? The concept of God's humanity can be tough to grasp. It was for even Jesus' own disciples. In fact, at some point, uh, Philip, who, by the way, was walking around with Jesus, he was seeing all of the miracles that Jesus was doing. He was listening to Jesus teach as someone unlike anyone else. He, was, he got a front row seat to all of it, and he still had the nerve to say this. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. That would be enough for us. Just show us the Father. We want, we want you to talk about the Father. Show us the Father. And here's Jesus' answer to him. Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been a, among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. And then he says, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. The simple answer to Philip is, hey man, 
I've been right in front of you this whole time. When he asks, let us see the Father, the simple answer is you're looking at him. Now, I don't know how, how many of you guys have seen the uh, series that's on TV now, um, the Chosen series, and I'll be honest, with a lot of these Christian productions, I sort of like hold my breath, because I'm like, there are some really kind of corny, cut-rate Christian productions, and I'm like, I, what's this going to be like? And so, uh, so I was like, I'll give it a shot, you know, start watching some of it, and I'll just be honest with you, I was really just first of all, impressed by the artistry of it, the creativity of it, and how well done it actually was. And if you haven't seen the series The Chosen, I definitely recommend it. Uh, I think it's well done. Obviously, just like anything else, there's creative liberties taken, uh, but it's really good, really quality. Interestingly enough, as they depict Jesus in The Chosen, the people that have had the most problems with it are often in Christian circles. Because they struggle with the humanity of Jesus. They struggle with Jesus being pre, uh, presented in such a way where his humanity can be on full display. And it's interesting, the art, there's some articles written about this, but the producers talked about how their primary word for the show is authenticity. They didn't want Jesus to appear like stiff and impersonal, but they wanted to, uh, his authenticity to really come forth in the show, and I think they did a really good job of it. They wanted to depict both Jesus' humanity and his humility, which come hand in hand. One scene in particular, um, speaking of the birth of Jesus scene, Joseph is actually shoveling up animal manure with a shovel, preparing a place for Mary to give birth to the Messiah. I mean, can you imagine? And it just puts us in these scenes. And there's so many other scenes that are just compelling as they demonstrate the humanity of Jesus. You see Jesus telling jokes, sharing great stories. He's a phenomenal storyteller. You see people leaning in and listening as he teaches, and people are just drawn to him. And the overwhelming feeling for me as I watched it was man, I I actually want to know that guy. Like, I would love to hang out with that guy, to spend time with that guy, to learn more from that guy. And there's just something that draws me to him. And I can't help but think that this is the very point of the incarnation of Jesus, that God wants to be known, that God has put this desire in us and, and, and really these questions in us to draw us back to himself. And then he reveals himself in the person of Jesus so that we're not left wondering, what is God like? Because we can see it as God discloses himself in Jesus. God becomes knowable, approachable, opens himself up to anyone who wants to know him, yet still bears the mystery of divinity. Augustine once said, a comprehended God is no God. There's still the mystery of God. There's still questions left unanswered. But what God does in Jesus is he allows us to see that God wants us to dig deeper, to seek after him, and to be known by him. In every other major religion, if you think about it, God is approached with such stiff reverence that the most notable emotion is one of fear. We come before him with reverence, obviously, but in most every other religion, there is this reverence that's to the level of, I'm just afraid that he's going to crush me. Like, if I come too close, if I do, and even really in, in the Old Testament, we see a lot of this. We don't see the full picture yet illuminated in Christ, but as Jesus is revealed, we see God's loving initiative as God becomes man. We see now that we can approach God not out of reverent fear, but out of relational love. And this is a concept that is unique to Christianity. And out of that relational love, then, we, of course, 
appreciate him with reverence as well. In Jesus, though, we don't just get to know God. We get to know ourselves as we were made to be. Here's the second idea. In Jesus, we discover the true and better way to be human. Not only does God give us a new and fuller picture of his divinity, he gives us a true and better picture in Jesus of our own humanity. There is no more beautiful expression of humanity than that displayed by the heart and life of Christ Jesus. That's why so many people across all of history are just trying to figure out who is this guy. We have to account for him in some way. There's something so compelling about this person of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 45 uh, through 49 says this, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man, from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have been, again, listen, born the likeness of the earthly man, Adam, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. In other words, we have Adam's DNA in us, right? We have the flesh within us, but we also can take hold of that what Jesus offers, which is life. Jesus is the true and better Adam. Adam was stained by sin. He was prone to rebellion. He was drawn to everything that brought about death. Jesus, the second Adam, was sinless. He was marked by righteous obedience. He was the embodiment of love and life as it was meant to be lived. Yes, we bear the likeness of the flesh of Adam. There's no ignoring that or hiding from that. Yet because God became man, we can also take hold of the heavenly man of Jesus that we can bear his likeness. The great Swiss theologian Karl Barth fittingly called the church father of the 20th century, put it this way, as the man Jesus is himself the revealing word of God, he is the source of our knowledge of the nature of man as created by God. Simply put, this means that by imitating Christ, we are reflecting the perfect and complete imago Dei that we can completely and fully live out our purpose as God's image bearers. We have ingrained in us this tendency to emulate those around us, don't we? I mean, from a young age, we start emulating. If you watch kids, they're watching you, right? They're watching what you're doing, whether it be so that they can talk and learn, learn language or whether it be learning whatever. We have this ingrained in us to want to emulate, to want to copy, to want to imitate things that we see around us and experience around us. And this starts at a very young age. We start to become like those that we're closest with, whether we know it or not. Eventually, you start saying the kinds of things your parents said. You do. Like, you start to, I'm saying now to my kids the things that I, like, rolled my eyes about as a kid, you know? I'm, like, saying the same exact phrases. Jess has a lot of phrases that she uses that her mom says. But when we we spend time in proximity to someone, we take on um, and we emulate and imitate a lot of their uh, their manner of being, their mannerisms, whatever it might be, but it starts at a really young age. We have uh, our, our third one now is we're in that potty training like phase. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, the first two, like, it wasn't so bad. The third one, that dude's not having anything to do with the potty training. Like, he can do it, and that's what's frustrating, but he doesn't give a rip. Like, we're, like he just, he's just cool, just like, I'm just going to pee in my pants. Like, mom will change me. You know, like, we'll do this 10 times a day. It's fine. I'll, I'll pee in my pants over and over again. And, and uh, he just tell us after he's done, like, hey, I, 
I peed in my pants, you know, just so you know, like it's all in like, he just walk around, he's got zero shame, like he just wears it, you know, and I'm like, dude, that's got to be uncomfortable, like just don't pee in your pants, like I know you know how to not do that. The only time we've seen success is we live kind of in a, you know, out in the country a little bit, and he'll just walk out in the yard and just, just like, you know, he'll go right there, and that's about like, we're still working on the, you know, the house training him, you know, but it's, it's funny because, like, he, he is just, just, just like he's his own guy. You know, he's going to learn it. It's just going to be on his own terms and in his own time. And so we have had to, though, send him to preschool. And this is a problem when you're at preschool. You can't just be the PP kid. You know, you got to, dude, like, you got to go to the bathroom. You got to tell your teachers, you know. And often days he comes out and we got to, like, ask, like, how many times today? You know, like, how, how many times do you have to change him today? We can only send so much underwear, you know. And uh, so he's up there uh, this past week, and he's just started going to school with his buddy named Titus, who's Connor, who uh, is the campus pastor up at the Middletown, his little son. And so um, they're now in class together. He's super excited because they're good, they're good buddies, you know. And so they're up there in class the other day. Jude comes down, you know, proudly wearing his pee-pee pants. You know, they probably ran out of underwear to change him into. He comes on down, and... Uh, Jess goes, buddy, why did you pee in your pants again? You know, like, you know better. And he just goes, like, this is his line to her. He goes, my buddy Ty-Ty did it. They both peed their pants that day. You know, it's like now they're like, just like, could you guys, I don't know, encourage each other not to pee in your pants. Like, maybe we could try that. But we're, we're still working on it. But we love to emulate those around us, right? We like to Im- imitate those around us, even unconsciously at times, right? And as Romans tells us, we were made to not be conformed to the first man, Adam. We were actually made to be conformed to the image of the second man, Jesus. First Peter tells us that we can actually participate in the divine nature, that we can participate in the things of God. In lifelong sanctification, we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory. We're being transformed into the image of God with ever-increasing glory. It's not a work of our own. We allow God to inhabit us through His Spirit who transforms us into the image of God with ever-increasing glory. I've tried it on my own effort. I can't get there. And we're broken. We're human, right? But by God's power, we can grow. We can become more human in the way that we were meant to be human. 1 John 1, 2 through 5, 5 through 6 says, Whoever claims to live in Him must live as Jesus did. Romans 13, 14 tells us, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Clothe yourselves with him. This is how we, by, with God's help, experience the best of what it means to be human. And if Jesus hadn't become a man, we wouldn't have this living example of what it looks like to truly be human, but he did. The third thing is this, that in Jesus we see the God who actually understands us, who actually gets us. It's a profound thought. It's an important thought. I, uh, this past week, I, I was kind of like, I don't want this to come across as like venting to like first hour, but then I just started sharing and it was like I was venting. <laughs> but it was one of those weeks, you ever have one of those weeks where you just can't get anything done? Like as hard as you try, it's almost like you're working backward. The harder I try, the less I'm getting. I'm like actually creating more work. The, the more that I try. And we had all kinds of different things going on this week. It was just one of those weeks. And 
I usually make mistakes when I'm more maxed out, you know, when I don't have as much margin. I like the mistakes are compounded. And then I make a mistake. I get more frustrated and make more and more mistakes. And it's just like, can we start, where's, can the week start over? Like, let's just start this one over. And it's one of those weeks. It's nothing big. It was just a frustrating kind of a deal. We were working on projects at home. I'd run out to Home Depot. I'd get a board that costs, like, by the way, wood's expensive, like $30. And I would miss it by like a quarter of an inch. And there'd be this big gap. And it's driving me crazy. Is driving Jess crazy, and I'm like, I just went to Home Depot. Now I'm back to Home Depot, and now I've, I've worked in reverse because I've got less done. And so over and over again, I feel like I was doing this. You ever cut crown, crown uh, molding? Uh, I know how to now after I've cut a whole lot of it wrong. And so I was back and forth, like just doing all that, and I'm like, you know, and I could tell she's frustrated, I'm frustrated, and the week just continued on like that. I had a glitch in my computer that I had some papers due, totally messed that up. I worked all morning, computer glitched out. All of the notes that I had prepped on the message studying this, this week, bye-bye, see you later. I'm like, this is going to frustrate me so much. And then by the end of the week, I literally felt like, what did I, I have not accomplished anything. I have a lot to accomplish. It's Friday. I'm do like, I'm like, okay, I'm going to give this one more shot. I went and picked up a piece of quarter round. Because I'm in a rush, I, top, I get this 16-foot, this is my mistake, piece of quarter round. I try to get into my truck that has only a five-foot bed. You know, I'm like, we'll just kind of snake it around over top of my truck and, like, strap it on there. One turn out of the parking lot of Home Depot, the thing slides off my car, and now I'm driving with a limbo bar, like, across traffic. You know, and I've got out of the way in time before I caused like a pileup, but then I'm trying to fit it back into my truck and it snaps in half. And I'm like, cool, glad I went to Home Depot for that, you know. And then I drive back to the house. Uh, it's going to end soon, I promise. But I get back to the house. There's a point to all this, I think. Um, and I get back home and it's movie night. I'm like supposed to be done with all this. If I try to work on my message, now the internet doesn't work. We just got it like two weeks ago. I'm not going to name the company, but I'm like, this should work, you know, and I'm like, I can't get any of my stuff done. I can't look anything up, and I'm getting more and more frustrated. The kids are running through the house, stomping, and I'm like, it's all little things, but it's too many little things now, and I'm getting to the point where I'm about to like, we're supposed to be having our movie night tonight, supposed to be calm, relaxed, everything's supposed to be done, and so I decided at this point in time when I'm most frustrated that it's time to call up customer service with the internet company, right? Not usually the best time. I'm super irritable. I'm like on the phone and like, sir, what seems to be the problem? Oh, would you really like to know what seems to be the problem? Like, let me walk it, walk it, walk it out for you. So we're like, and so I know that I'm super like just in a bad spot, you know? And all of a sudden, like, she just had like said, well, the internet that I just, you know, we just got a couple weeks ago is already not working. It's been intermittent all day. Now it's non-existent. So how are we going to fix it? Like, I'm like really being sarcastic, a total jerk. I get it. And uh, I, I, I own that. And she, she goes all of a sudden, she just says, she says, this, she says, um, well, well uh, Josh, my name's Brooke. I'm going to help you out here. And let me just first of all say, that is super frustrating. Let's see if we can work together to get that fixed for you. And I'm like, this is like the most brilliant customer service strategy. Because I went from like super frustrated about, she just acknowledged me. Like I'm seen, you know, like I'm validated. Wow. And she was totally genuine about it too, by the way. She's like, that is super frustrating. Like, let's see if we can't work that out, you know. And so that was just, how disarming is that statement, you know. And there is something so validating about somebody saying to you in a truly genuine way, listen, hey. I get it. I get it. And God does more than just say to us, I get it. His, his presence displays for us that he gets it. 
in Jesus, God walks in our shoes. He has walked in our shoes. Hebrews 4, 15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he was without sin. This is a powerful thought that God gets us. And I said first hour, I said, I think it was Alanis Morissette that sung that song, What If God Was One of Us? It was somebody else. Who was it? Somebody. Okay, it doesn't matter. Well, you wouldn't have known. I could have just lied to you then, but... I thought it was Alanis Morissette, but it was just this like annoyingly catchy song, like, what if God was one of us? Remember this one? Just a slob like one of us. It's like just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home, which is a really compelling thought. I don't think Jesus was messy. I don't know, but here's what I, I'm, he was one of us. And this concept is really compelling. Listen, he was born like one of us. He grew up like one of us. He started as a baby, needing everything that babies need. I don't know if he was pee-pee pants like my son. You know, maybe he was better than that. But he got tired like one of us. He was mistreated, ridiculed, rejected like one of us. He was misunderstood like one of us. He faced all the pressures of life like one of us. He had to deal with customer service calls. Like, no, probably not. But He ate like one of us. He grew hungry like one of us. He was prone to disappointment and despair like one of us. He wept like one of us. As he faced loss, he dealt with the full range of human emotions like one of us. He suffered like one of us. He worked a labor job as a carpenter. He came home with blisters on his hands like one of us. He dealt with real pain like one of us, mentally, physically, emotionally. He even died a human death like one of us. And his words on the cross as he looked up to heaven were, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Talk about experiencing the human experience. God is a God who can relate to us. He understands us. He shouts into every dark corner of the human existence, I understand. I understand. Here I am. Take my hand. We don't serve a God who is distant, unrelatable, impersonal. We serve one who has both walked in our shoes and now stands at our side, or perhaps more accurately, he occupies our heart. And so to those of you that think today, nobody understands. They don't understand my story. Nobody could possibly understand my story. Listen, God understands. He gets us, which, by the way, is what enables us to trust him because God became a man, because he actually walked in our shoes, we can trust him. It'd be a totally different story if God had just enjoyed all the trappings of heaven and had nothing to do with the human experience. But we have a God who understands our pain in the truest and deepest possible way. Walter Burkhart writes this, only trust makes evil endurable. Trust not because God has offered proof, but because God has shown his face. The movement in summary from experience of God to love of God to trust in God. Knowing that God has walked where we walked. He's experienced the darkest parts of humanity that make him a God that we can trust, a God that we can count on, knowing that he has shown his face. I mean, he could have said, hey, listen, I understand. I understand And he could have left it at that. But he goes further than that. He steps into the story, our story, and he reclaims it as his own. This is the last idea I want to spend a little time on as we wrap up. 
through the humanity of Jesus, God redeems the human story. Perhaps you know the story, you've, you've read the story, you've heard some aspects of the story, and we've, in John 1, we've been looking at the creation story. I mean, if you look at the entirety of John 1, it really is the story of mankind, it's the story of God and the story of man, and we see the same story at the beginning of Genesis. In Genesis 1, what we find out, well, we see that God created man in his own image. He saw that it was good. They lived in perfect unity with God. There was this perfect um, connection between God and man and all that flows through that. They were living life at its best as life was meant to be experienced. In Genesis number 2, what do we see? Well, we see that man wasn't satisfied to just have all that comes from God and to be in communion with God. Man wanted to be God. They wanted to be their own God, and so the one thing they weren't supposed to do was eat that one apple, right? Here we go. We eat the apple. You know how the story goes. There is now this rebellion and this, this uh, shattered relationship with God. And in Genesis 3, we see the fallout of that. We see sin give rise to shame, which creates separation, which leads to chaos, death, and ultimately destruction. And Sally Lloyd-Jones, she points this out. She says that in another story, it would all be over and that would have been the end. Our Bibles could have stopped after three tragic chapters. God had no obligation to us beyond that point. That could have been the end of the story. All right, sorry, I tried to give you something good, but here you go. But here's the beauty of what we see as God enters our world through Jesus and if you look in Genesis 3.15, that's not how the story ended. In fact, the moment that sin entered in and that reality entered in, we see that God was already unfolding a plan of redemption. In John 3.15, there's this word that they use to describe John 3, or sorry, I keep saying John, Genesis 3.15, and they call it the, the proto-evangelium. It's a big word. You should try to use it. Maybe throw it around at Christmas time or something. Don't do that, okay? But the word basically just means it's the first gospel. Genesis 3.15 is the first gospel. It's where God promises to raise up one of Eve's offspring to crush the head of the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And so this is what happens in the garden. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's another translation that says that he will crush your head. And so what God's saying in Genesis 3.15 is, listen, he had already decided at this point that he would send his son. God had already stared evil in the face and said, hey, we're coming for you. We're coming for you. And God crushed the head of the serpent at the resurrection. And Jesus' birth, sinless life, death, and resurrection, God crushed the head of the serpent, a baby born to give his life for his human brothers and sisters to personally crush the head of the serpent. Though his heel was bruised at Calvary, death was defeated through the empty tomb. The head of evil was crushed at the foot of the cross. So we can truly sing, the weary world rejoices. And this is the line that continued to strike me as we were singing this song here. At the end, I was just spending time kind of reading over the notes, and sometimes God will just like hit me with a statement and a thought. I wish he would do it sooner rather than right before I'm about to get up here. But I'm like, oh, man, i got to rework this. But here's the line that really struck me as we were singing the song we're about to sing and as I was thinking about this message found in Genesis 3.15. Here it is. The human story is a hope story. 
the human story is a hope story because of Jesus. Your story can be a hope story because of Jesus. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. The human story is a hope story because of Jesus. For to us the child is born, to us the son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. The human story is a hope story because of Jesus. So let's talk about you. God wants you to know him. He went as far to send his very own son, be born in a dirty stable, to lay down his life for you because he wants you to know him. He wants you to be reunited to him. And then he wants to unlock your fullest human potential, not by self-sufficiency, we've all tried that, but by his power, through the power of his son. He wants you to know that you're seen, you're heard, you're understood. If you've got questions or doubts or whatever it might be, God sees that. He hears you. He understands. He wants to meet you exactly where you're at today. And he simply just wants to say, listen, I understand. Here, take my hand. And God wants you to take hold of your truest Destiny. He wants to take hold of your story. This is the Christmas invitation that God has for you. To make your story a hope story because of Jesus. So how will you respond? I'm going to hang out here in the back for just a little bit uh, as we sing this next song. I just want to encourage you, if you have questions about that, if you just want prayer about any of that, or you're like, hey, I, I've been fighting it for a long time, but I need that hope story. I'll be there to talk about that. We're about to sing this song called Hope Has a Name, Emmanuel. And as you sing out these words, I appreciated Mitch's challenge earlier as he just called us to really think about the words we're singing. Here's the words of the song. Hope has a name, Emmanuel, the light of the world who broke through the darkness. All hail the King, Emmanuel, the light of the world, the glory of heaven. I like this last part. We didn't see it coming. The story of redemption was started in a manger, ended in an empty grave. Your story is a hope story because of Jesus. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for the opportunity just to come before you, to meet you exactly where we're at. We know we don't have to clean it all up for you or be perfect before you. Because you were a man, God, you understand us. You invite us to yourself, God. I just pray, just in whatever way, God, that you would reach out to each of your children in this room today and just let them know that you see them personally. You want to know them personally. And God, that you have a hope story for each and every one of them. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to our world. Thank you, Jesus, for giving your life on the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for conquering the enemy, for crushing his head. Through the resurrection we 